But I, I feel like it was it was okay. I think the the one thing I'll say is whoever edits this episode is gonna have to take a firm hand on getting rid of some of my dumb jokes. Hello and welcome back to Black Box Poetry. I think we're all really excited to be here today and talking about the outer reaches of metaphor, metaphor, metaphor. I'm Anastasia, and I'm joined here today by my two comrades at arms. Hey, guys. Hey, uh, my name is Sean. I uh, study 19th century literature at Rutgers, and I live in Philadelphia. My name's Isaac. I'm a poet and translator of Russian and Ukrainian. And I'm Anastasia. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Rochester and the poetry editor at Open Letter Books. All right. Should we just get down to business? Do we want to get some ideas about why we're saying the outer reaches of metaphor rather than just metaphor? Yeah. I mean, like, I would say as a broad oversimplification that there are kind of two uh, different ways that people approach metaphor. Sometimes uh, the the flex is to have the most natural metaphor where you hear it and you immediately think, yes, of course, those two things are like each other. I've always had that thought somewhere deep down inside of me. And now that you have spoken it, it has finally come to the surface. And then there's another approach to it where you really sort of flaunt the artificiality of it and sort of relish the fact that you've found a way of, you know, tossing two things together uh, that can't be denied, but is also deeply weird and surprising. That's a great way of saying it, Sean Isaac. Do you have anything to add to that? I, I don't think you can be put much better than that. I think we're ready to start on that note. All right. Awesome. Let's do this. All right. Well, let's just like have the poems show us what we're talking about. Yeah. What we got? What's up first? Well, I'm hung over this morning, so I have a poem about Allen Ginsberg being hung over in the morning that also deals with the outer reaches of metaphor. This is called Sunflower Sutra. I walked on the banks of the tin can banana dock and sat down under the huge shade of a southern Pacific locomotive to look at the sunset over the box house hills and cry. Jack Kerouac sat beside me on a busted rusty iron pole companion. We thought the same thoughts of the soul, bleak and blue and sad-eyed, surrounded by the gnarled steel roots of trees of machinery. The oily water on the river mirrored the red sky. Sun sank on top of final Frisco peaks. No fish in that stream, no hermit in those mounts. Just ourselves roomy-eyed and hung over like old bums on the riverbank, tired and wily. Look at the sunflower, he said. There was a dead gray shadow against the sky, big as a man, sitting dry on top of a pile of ancient sawdust. I rushed up enchanted. It was my first sunflower, memories of Blake, my visions, Harlem and hells of the eastern rivers, bridges clanking, Joe's greasy sandwiches, dead baby carriages, black treadless tires, forgotten and unretreaded, the poem of the riverbank, condoms and pots, steel knives, nothing stainless, only the dank muck and the razor-sharp artifacts passing into the past. And the gray sunflower poised against the sunset, crackly, bleak, and dusty with the smud and smog and smoke of olden locomotives in its eye. Corolla of bleary spikes pushed down and broken like a battered crown, seeds fallen out of its face, soon to be toothless mouth of sunny air, sunrays obliterated on its hairy head like a dried wire spider web. Leaves stuck out like arms out of the stems, gestures from the sawdust root, broke pieces of plaster fallen out of the black wings, a dead fly in its ear. Unholy, battered old thing you were, my sunflower. Oh, my soul, I loved you then. The grime was no man's grime but death and human locomotives. All that dress of dust, that veil of darkened railroad skin, that smog of cheek, that eyelid of black misery, that sooty hand or phallus, or protuberance of artificial worse than dirt, industrial, modern, all that civilization spotting your crazy golden crown. And those blear thoughts of death, and dusty loveless eyes, and ends and withered roots below, in the home pile of sand and sawdust, rubber dollar bills, skin of machinery, the guts and innards of the weeping coughing car, the empty lonely tin cans with their rusty tongues alack, what more could I name, the smoked ashes of some cock cigar, the cunt of wheelbarrows and the smoky breasts of cars, worn out asses of chairs, and sphincters of dynamos, all these, entangled in your mummied roots, and you were there standing before me in the sunset, all your glory in your form, a perfect beauty of a sunflower, an excellent lovely sunflower existence, a sweet natural eye to the new hip moon, woke up alive and excited in the sunset shadow sunrise golden monthly breeze. 
How many flies buzzed round you, innocent of your grime, while you cursed the heavens of the railroad and your flower's soul? Poor dead flower, when did you forget you were a flower? When did you look at your skin and decide you were an impotent, dirty old locomotive, the ghost of a locomotive, the specter and shade of a once powerful, mad American locomotive? You were no locomotive, sunflower. You were a sunflower. And you, locomotive, you are a locomotive. Forget me not. So I grabbed up the skeleton-thick sunflower and stuck it at my side like a scepter, and deliver my sermon to my soul, and Jack's soul too, and anyone who'll listen. We're not our skin of grime. We're not dread, black, dusty, imageless locomotives. We're golden sunflowers inside, blessed by our own seed and hairy, naked accomplishment bodies growing into mad, black, formal sunflowers in the sunset, spied on by our own eyes under the shadow of the mad locomotive riverbank, sunset, Frisco, heli, tin can, evening, sit-down vision. So I submit that Ginsburg is not just a try-hard with these metaphors, although he absolutely <laughs> is, and that's why we love him. I think he's also including a cipher for the particular kind of weirdness that these metaphors offer by deliberately crossing the wires. I think the most marked one would probably be leaves stuck out like arms out of the stem, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's sort of running the comparison backwards we're we're very accustomed to the idea of wires being like roots of a uh, industrial tangle being like arboreal tangle that's something that makes sense but now we have that same uh embodiment happening the opposite way we have leaves are sticking out like arms from the stem and there's a similar vibe when it talks about trees of machinery of like you know, sort of reversing the normal way that we would think the metaphor. Here's the trees and machinery shot. That's in, um, oh yeah, I should give some context. That's in that, the, the second long line. Uh, I'll jump halfway through because it's a very long line, but it says surrounded by the gnarled steel roots of trees of machinery. Yeah, he does do that interesting thing where um, normally when you're dealing with a metaphor, right, there's a certain point where the tenor disappears and you're really just paying attention to the vehicle. So these are tenor and vehicle are these like annoying, stupid terms we use when we're talking about the thing that we're trying to describe is the tenor. And then the thing we use to compare it to is the vehicle. So, right, the vehicle that takes us to the tenor. Okay. Anyway. So we have this weird thing, right, where normally you kind of forget whatever the original thing was that you're trying to describe because you get lost describing it in the comparison. And uh, in both of these examples that you guys are drawing, there's that really great feeling that you're kind of popping between the two constantly, that you have to keep both of them in mind, which is exactly how a metaphor always works. But he's kind of showing us that machinery as it's happening. It feels like part of the way that this poem works is that the kind of like the dramatis personae in the setting are really clearly like laid out for us. And because of that, he can just have attributes just getting plastered onto, you know, the wrong objects over and over and over again. And so if we didn't have the sense of like, okay, uh, rail, railway yard, sunflower, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac then this would get super, super frustrating. But one of the things that this manages to to do to rein in the kind of sh- like aggressive shagginess of it is to give us a very clear set of coordinates around which he can sort of smear all of these different, you know, images and qualities. Right. Even though we keep going off into like these different, like this listing and there's all sorts of different references that are brought in, it is much more contained because of the coordinates that we get at the beginning, but also because it is always kind of going back to this sunflower. So it does, we always have like a couple of different reference points that we can kind of refer back to. I was really struck by the fact that listening to you read it, Isaac, I felt a lot freer in this Ginsburg poem than I do in others to just like kind of forget where the beginning of the line was because I kind of knew that we weren't going that far away. Whereas like a poem like Howl or Kaddish is two like longer poems that are more all encompassing. You really don't know where the hell he's going to end up because he's kind of trying to capture all of America and like Howl. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Yeah. And in, and in Howl, you need to give your listener a real pause at the end of those lines because it's not going to hang together and cohere without it. But this poem is is deliberately not trying to cohere. It's trying to make everything adhere to everything else. 
So you don't need to punctuate those line breaks so much when you're reading it. Yeah. And one of the things this is making me reflect on is how if you were to think about the really like hyper canonical Allen Ginsberg poems, um, they're almost all from the 50s and maybe early 60s. But they also are really different in the mechanisms they use to hold themselves together. So like, you know, this really depends on imagery and metaphor and staging where for Howell that sort of like repeated line beginnings, you know, who da 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 da, who da 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 da, Moloch, 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 like these are the things that give you a sense of structure while you're experiencing that poem. Um, and Zubermarkt in California would be like yet a third method, which is really about anecdote as opposed to metaphor. Getting back to the, uh, the smearing, I think we should point out how the smearing isn't just happening with the different objects and images in the painting. It's also happening with the sort of semantic brush strokes. And I think that's most apparent if you look at the mismatching of uh, the idea of a crown, where we have a corolla of bleary spikes pushed down and broken like a battered crown, Mm -hmm. seeds fallen out of its face, soon to be toothless mouth of sunny air. Uh, a, a crown is part of a flower already. So we have the comparison of uh, the crown is like a crown. The stickiness of the homophonic ideas uh, is paired with the stickiness of the metaphors. Yeah. I do really like the way that Ginsburg's style really allows for um, that kind of riffing on a metaphor that is harder to do when you have when you don't have the same kind of rhythmic repetitious listing kind of quality to a poem it's a lot harder to bring back an image and kind of just like quickly touch it and then move on so the way that the crown the line that Isaac just read and then that crown comes back again Wow, this is such a long line. Uh, the veil yeah. of darkened railroad skin, that smog of cheek, that eyelid of black misery, that sooty hand or phallus or protuberance of artificial worse than dirt, industrial, modern, all that civilization spotting your crazy gold crown and all those blear thoughts of death and dusty loveless eyes and ends. Um, right, we get that crown again. That's like three stanzas-ish, if you call them stanzas, later. And it's referring back, but you can just kind of drop it in and move away, which is something that Ginsburg has the luxury of doing Mm -hmm. because of how his images kind of like build and riff and respond and go back and get cut off and then repeat. It's nice that that can happen. That's a lot harder to do in other poems. The fact that Ginsburg has set up the poem in such a way that everything can be a variation on everything else is setting the reader up for the situation at the end where the sunflower is the body, which is also the locomotive, but it's not the locomotive. And don't you ever forget that it's not the locomotive, even though it is. Which is a weird, a weird thing that metaphor can do. Like, I think I've used the example uh, on this podcast before. There's a philosopher at uh, Rutgers named Elizabeth Camp who describes metaphors as ways of seeing. And the example that she used that sort of blows my mind is when John Donne says, no man is an island, that's literally true, but it's still a metaphor. And there's a similar thing that like saying you're not a locomotive is literally true, but it's also a metaphor because it still is sort of bringing into play this sort of frame of comparison. And it's your, you're not this specific locomotive with its uh, with its skin of grime that is like the skin that encloses and circumscribes your person, but he doesn't need to specify that because he's already put you in this microcosmos where that's the case. Do you want to go on to uh, another uh, mid-century marvel? Another mid-century marvel? Oh, boy. Yeah. Gosh, golly, gee whiz. Yep. It's like, <laughs> it's like furniture with clean lines. <laughs> but the lines are not clean. <laughs> I mean, I think at this point we have to think about what kind of values we want to instill in the machines because we still have an opportunity to affect what kind of civilization they're going to build. Yeah. So if we're going to be the the eggshell that machine intelligence hatches out mm. of, which I personally would be fine with, then we need to be the best egg show we can be. Yeah. Filled with nutrients, extra broccoli. Yeah. 
Speaking of technology that could have taken <laughs> the world but might have failed and actually didn't, uh, how about we read about some typewriter erasers? Yeah, very good. <laughs> Anastasia, your ability to make this appear coherent yeah. never ceases to amaze me. Yeah. So, our mid-century marvel that we're heading to now, our uh, newfangled technological that. poem, is 12 O'Clock News by Elizabeth Bishop. Liz Bish, our fave. She's back. Then we probably need to outlaw her because we keep reading. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we say, like, it's always the last time, but, you know, there's there's going to be a lot more last With times to come. Her, Dickinson, and know, Gluck, God. there's people who just keep coming yeah. back. All right. But I have yeah. 12 O'Clock News by Elizabeth Bishop. Um, and one thing I have to say before I read it out loud is that there's a lot of debate about how to read this poem because it's if you look at if you click the link in our show notes um, or you go Google it because that might be easier than going through our show notes, um, you'll see that the poem is a series of stanzas that almost look like discrete prose poems. Um, and then to the left, they're kind of labeled with the names of items that you would find on a desk. Um, and some people say that you should read all of those names first and then read the paragraphs in sequence. And others, like me, say that you should read the label first and then the corresponding stanza. So I'm going to read it that way and just tip my hand and use that interpretive power. But by all means, interpret it the wrong way if you want to. Yeah, those other people are not on this podcast. <laughs> So, uh, 12 o'clock news. Gooseneck lamp. As you all know, tonight is the night of the full moon half the world over. But here the moon seems to hang motionless in the sky. It gives very little light. It could be dead. Visibility is poor. Nevertheless, we shall try to give you some idea of the lay of the land and the present situation. Typewriter. The escarpment that rises abruptly from the central plain is in heavy shadow, but the elaborate terracing of its southern glacier gleams faintly in the dim light like fish scales. What endless labor those small, peculiarly shaped terraces represent, and yet on them the welfare of this tiny principality depends. Pile of manuscripts. A slight landslide occurred in the northwest about an hour ago. The exposed soil appears to be of poor quality, almost white, calcareous and shaly. There are believed to have been no casualties. Typed sheet. Almost due north, our aerial reconnaissance reports the discovery of a large rectangular field, hitherto unknown to us, obviously man-made. It is a it is dark speckled, an airstrip, a cemetery, envelopes. In this small, backward country, one of the most backward left in the world today, communications are crude, and industrialization and its products are almost non-existent. Strange to say, however, signboards are on a truly gigantic scale ink bottle. We have also received reports of a mysterious, oddly shaped black structure at an undisclosed distance to the east. Its presence was revealed only because its highly polished surface catches such feeble moonlight as prevails. The natural resources of the country being far from completely known to us, there is the possibility that this may be, or may contain, some powerful and terrifying secret weapon. On the other hand, given what we do know or have learned about from our anthropologists and sociologists about this people, it may well be nothing more than a Newman or a great altar recently erected to one of their gods, to which, in their present historical state of superstition and helplessness, they attribute magical power and may even regard as a savior one last hope of rescue from their grave difficulties. Typewriter eraser. At last! 
one of the elusive natives has been spotted. He appears to be, rather to have been, a unicyclist courier who may have met his end by falling from the height of the escarpment because of the deceptive illumination. Alive, he would have been small, but undoubtedly proud and erect, with the thick, bristling black hair typical of the indigenes. Ashtray. From our superior vantage point, we can clearly see into a sort of dugout, possibly a shell crater, a nest of soldiers. They lie heaped together wearing the camouflage battle dress intended for winter warfare. They're in hideously contorted position, all dead. We can make out at least eight bodies. These uniforms were designed to be used in guerrilla warfare on the country's once snow-covered mountain peak. The fact that these poor soldiers are wearing them here, on the plain, gives further proof, if proof were necessary, either of the childishness and hopeless impracticality of this inscrutable people, our opponents, or of the sad corruption of their leaders. So the most marked thing about this particular poem, I think, if you are examining it with a focus on metaphor is the objects that are being extrapolated from to produce these metaphors are just presented and neatly categorized for you. So the process of discovery or integration that the reader has when running a metaphor that a poet has created operates in a completely different way. It's sort of happening in laboratory conditions. And that's kind of a strange similarity that this has with Sunflower Sutra, which never would have occurred to me if we hadn't put them right next to each other, is that the sort of really clearly defined parameters actually allow it to be like very extravagant. But I think like laboratory conditions is a really good way of putting this because one of the funny things that happens by labeling out all of the metaphors that are going to be constructed between objects on a writer's desk and a description of an imaginary country is that the kind of like false objectivity or false seriousness of that all those ways of talking are being forced to the surface even more clearly because we know that they're you know illusory or that they're inappropriate that like um this is describing a crater with soldiers when it should be describing an ashtray with, you know, unfiltered cigarettes. Yeah, it actually, I've never really thought about metaphor in terms of laboratory conditions. Um, when you teach poetry to undergrads or to people who don't have a ton of experience with poetry and you start with formal poems, you often talk about that we start with forms and that there's a lot to be learned from very tight forms because you can they give you a very defined set of structures so that you can kind of experiment within that very limited playground. And I've never thought about metaphor kind of working in a similar way, that if you have a very clear set of, like a very clear relationship that you're working with, you can kind of go a lot more wild because the parameter has already been set and the reader kind of already knows what the baseline is that you're working with. Um, so that, that's, that is a really useful thing that I'm, that's coming out of this conversation for me. In a, in a novel, you might imagine that you've got chemical reactions that are going on in a moving river. You've got this narrative sweeping along and you've got all kinds of flotsam and jetsam and you have this metaphor reacting somewhere in there and you're not sure how much of the prose you're encountering can be attributed to that metaphor here we've got a test tube and a process being applied to it, and everything that comes out is the result of the one reactant that was dropped into each of these test tubes on a wreck. I feel like the other thing that is really marked by this process is like sometimes when you're teaching like uh, really young people about writing, like you might have them, you might say like, uh, come up with a metaphor. And often when people who are not especially experienced or ambitious writers try to come up with metaphors, they really are about apt description. Like the goal is to describe something. And it feels like what this is doing, which is so strange, is it's almost taking that assignment that you get in, like, 
you know, high school or middle school to create a metaphor. And it's by imposing this sort of weird narrative where the writer's desk is a war zone that's described in a sort of like, you know, uh, condescending pompous tones of a 1950s news announcer that all sorts of weird, weird stuff can bubble up as a result. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you were starting to get to that, Sean, with the ashtray. Um, but the other one that I really like that works really well for me is um, my two favorites are right next to each other, a typewriter and the pile of manuscripts. Um, but the typewriter one is the one that I'm getting stuck on today. Um, so that's the one that says, the escarpment that rises abruptly from the central plain is in heavy shadow, but the elaborate terracing of its southern glacis gleams faintly in the dim light like fish scales. What endless labor those small, peculiarly shaped terraces represent, and yet on them the welfare of this tiny principality depends. So you can almost see that, like, in the center of this desk, right, the elaborate terracing is the typewriter kind of rising from the center of this desk, and the terraces, right, are the keys on the different levels. And she does this crazy thing where we know that the typewriter is like this, like, sloping cliff right a glacis is a sloping cliff so we can see that it's supposed to be a sloping cliff and the terraces right which terraces aren't natural they're man-made so that's like a really interesting moment that we have to contend with and then she compares those terraces to fish scales on the side of a cliff so you're just like how far can i get from this typewriter let me make it grand scale the size of a cliff then let me tell you, imagine that that cliff is actually a man-made. And then let me do this one more time. It's fucking fish scales on the side of a mountain. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? That's not allowed. What? What? Sorry. That's bonkers. And then that crazy thing that happens, right, is she's so like caught up in describing the the peculiarly shaped terraces, right? She's like, yeah, this is a weird looking mountain. And then she doesn't say anything else except that the whole welfare of this tiny principality depends on it. So in the world of the landscape where this is like the desk is this like forgotten universe, somehow this mountain supports people's like livelihoods, which doesn't make any sense. So you have to import the fact that this is actually a writer's desk and the fact that the typewriter is her means for making money and that gets grafted back on to the mountain cliff. Are you kidding? Fish. Well, the, what? the terraces it's... are agricultural, I assume, right? Isn't that why the... Yeah. Yeah. Right. Terrace farming, but she's not saying that. She just describes. She doesn't like describe what they're doing. She just like describes what they look like. I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> it's like an elaborate game on. There's this term. I think it's the fallacy of composition, which is the idea that if something is true of the things that a thing is made up of, it's true of the thing as a whole. And like, this is sort of like relishing in the ability to imagine that every key on the keyboard reflects endless work and then to say and also the keyboard represents endless work because it's a sort of like frustrating scene of misery for the writer where you can never be finished with your work similarly i love the fact that the pile of manuscripts is treated as a natural phenomenon but the type sheet is definitely is obviously man-made which so perfectly represents the writing experience where like a stack of things that you've written in the past is like, I don't know who's responsible for those. That just happened at some point, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, as, as if a gift from heaven, it just landed there. But a sheet that you worked on recently is like, Oh, let me tell you, I, I know exactly how that was made. <laughs> every, every grunt and sigh is still visible on the paper. <sighs> Um, the last thing that we should probably talk about, because I feel like you have to talk about it with this poem, is the way the typewriter eraser functions, um, because it's like the the only reason that anyone is ever going to know what a typewriter eraser eraser looks like ever is because of this. Poem. Yeah, <laughs> it's certainly the only reason I know it. So this is the part where it says, "At last, one of the elusive natives has been spotted. He appears to be, rather to have been, a unicyclist courier." who may have met his end by falling from the height of the escarpment because of the deceptive illumination. 
Alive, he would have been small, but undoubtedly proud and erect, with the thick, bristling black hair typical of the indigenes. Which is, not only do you have the kind of, like, the obvious sort of, like, condescension of this kind of old-school anthropological tone, but also there's this thing that happens throughout the poem where the descriptions are unimaginable, and if you were pretending that this was your description of another society, something in your brain should be like, I probably don't understand what's going on here. But the poem has a style of just always trundling forward as like, I know exactly what's going on here. This is science. This is a, a perfect understanding of who these people are and what their world is like. So you get all these goofy things like a unicyclist courier who may have met his end by falling from the height of the escarpment because of the deceptive illumination. Ah, so good. I know. The... I, two two things the that condescending anthropological tone that so powers most of the uh, stanzas is a really like bizarre part of this poem because because like old school anthropology is like pretty racist and like pretty yeah. condescending um so it's like a weird time capsule from the time period but it also works so well at um defamiliarizing the poet from these this like desk of hers that is so familiar but it also kind of dramatizes the way that a lot of really good poems will kind of create that distancing effect and give you that opportunity for kind of reflection or examination but way more over dramatized because of kind of the stakes of like an anthropological kind of study of an elusive native right like yeah the unicycle (laughs) courier strikes me as a poet deliberately creating an effect that we translators are always struggling to avoid. Uh, what my co-translator and I always call this is the the fake term. When you translate yeah. something in such a way that suggests that this is a piece of fixed language when it isn't. Or yeah. that this is this is an existing yeah. term and it isn't. So just, just dropping unicycle courier as if it's a completely normal anthropological term, like unicycle courier is like subsistence farmer. I I, yeah. I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. I also, I, I feel like such a late cover to this game that I've never really noticed the pun on deceptive illumination that, right, the courier falls, like a bicyclist gets into an accident because they can't see the road, right? Deceptive illumination. But also like, Oh, Eureka, I have a good idea. Let me type it out. Oh, wait, that was a deceptive oh my God. I need my typewriter eraser to get rid of Asia, it. I've never Asia, you are that my mind. <laughs> that's insane. Oh, that's so good. Oh, my God, I'm going to read this poem so many more times just because that happened. After, uh, after last week's episode, one of my friends asked if Isaac's house, house words would be the same experience by other means what would yours be? And I, I gave him nothing. I gave him absolutely nothing. But deceptively illuminated could be a good, a good family <laughs> for my, uh, for my, you know, feudal fiefdom. Is there another poem we need there to read? There is another poem. Or do we have other things to say? We have other poem to read. So uh, I brought a poem by Jean Toomer called Her Lips Are Copper Wire. All right. Her lips are copper wire. Whisper of yellow globes gleaming on lampposts that sway like bootleg liquor drinkers in the fog and let your breath be moist against me like bright beads on yellow globes. Telephone the powerhouse that the main wires are insolate. Her words play softly up and down dewy corridors of billboards. Then, with your tongue, remove the tape and press your lips to mine till they are incandescent. This poem makes me think electricity is even sexier than I already thought it was. <laughs> how, how did that robot get there? <laughs> One of my favorite things about this poem is just the way that the title just like happens into the first line, um, which isn't, you know, it's not the most novel trick in the world. Like there are lots of poets who do this, but when it's done well, like it's done here, it is just astonishing how beautiful it is. 
Her lips are copper wire, whisper of yellow globes. You almost get the sense, right, that they're both of those things. And, or almost like the copper wire is being compared to the whisper of yellow globes. It's like so beautifully done that you can't tell if it's a comparison or a continuation, an expansion on. Um, yeah. And it's just stunning, stunning how it just builds like that so so quickly, so immediately. It's immediately already putting the machinery into motion. I feel like this is a really good example of a poem that benefits from its lack of punctuation in lots of really subtle ways. So there's that effect where you almost feel like it's an enjam title, like the title is supposed to be read straight into the stanza, like Asia's describing. And when you experience that the first time, it feels like that first line is like, either a gloss on the metaphor in the title or it's a second metaphor that's related. And then when you get into the second stanza, it sort of forces a grammar back onto the first part where it's like, oh, no, 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 that was like an imperative being directed at you. So then it's like whisper of yellow globes gleaming on lampposts that sway like bootleg liquor drinkers in the fog and let your breath be moist against me. Like, I want you to whisper of yellow globes. But it also is, you know, immediately bringing that back by saying, like, bright beads on yellow globes. So there's a sort of weird circularity, always returning back to the same image, but having trouble sort of locating yourself with it, you know. It's moth-like, you know, you keep bumping up against this sort of bright light. That's a great way of describing it. Yeah, because the yellow globes are super central, are completely central to the poem. And Gene Toomer does such a great job of expanding the metaphors using different metaphors but keeping them all within the same kind of universe so that the image is very constant and consistent um and you kind of have to constantly scaffold around it without this like really annoying back and forth of like you know where you're kind of bouncing back and forth between the tenor and the vehicle a is like b and b is like c and c is like d and the constant it's much more circular so surprise surprise i'm going to talk about Ann carson a tiny bit here and about the erotic triangle where the distance between persons is necessary for erotic energy to exist because it requires a distance to cross, and how that process is exactly like a circuit being completed because electricity crosses a space. I just love that this poem is able to use that whole complex of metaphors of electricity being like eros or rather eros being like electricity i should say that are you know in the on on the popular tongue they're they're familiar recognizable expressions there's a sparks fly there's a spark between us you can feel the like all, all of that that's that's a existing domain of metaphor i i love how little bandwidth is spent on asserting that connection between electricity and eros it, it the, it's a point that makes itself yeah and it feels like one of the ways in which that's achieved is that this is at one level a poem of description but it's not presented as description it's presented as like a series of directions to a lover so instead of being like you know the sort of renaissance plays on kind of thing where it's like you know her lips are like coral and her eyes are like pearls and her hair is like wires and her breasts are like planets and you know like all that renaissance stuff this is like uh only ev in like invoking different parts of the lover's body insofar as they're being interacted with and so it almost turns that sort of schematic quality that you get in certain descriptive poems into like an electric an electric schematic where it's describing how, uh, you know, electricity is going to move around and the things that it's going to activate and, you know, charge up and energize, uh, which is such a, an, like, efficient and elegant way of running through so many striking images with such ease. I like the way that you set up, Sean, that this is mostly a series of directions um, or instructions for a lover. and But without the punctuation... Um, you really have to think about how the punk, how the directions are kind of being delivered, and that the change in the tone, the tone of how those directions, those instructions are being delivered, is really stunning. Because you, the first time you get one, right, is let your breath be moist against me, like bright beads on yellow globes. Like you can feel how softly that one is delivered, but the next one, telephone the powerhouse that the main wires are insulate, is much more forceful. Mm -hmm. Right. And then we kind of have the digression into the parenthesis, which is more like a more 
descriptive and then a more softly, like much more erotically d- delivered last line, uh, last stanza, then with your lips, remove the tape and press your lips to, to mine. The quality of those instructions, although they're all directions, all instructions given to a lover, the tone quality is so deftly shifted so that it never feels parallel. They're not parallel delivery. It's not a parallel delivery, even though it's functioning in the same way. I love that the verb is telephone in that stanza you're pointing at that it's the it's the most physical verb it's not it's not call it's telephone because the way you're able to call them is because you have this object that you're picking up that's connected to wires that run all the way from here to the power station yeah yeah and there's also a way in which it sort of builds out this urban environment so like you know we have the yellow globes and the lampposts We've got the reference to bootleg uh, liquor drinkers, but also we have like the te- like telephoning the powerhouse and um, her words play softly up and down dewy corridors of billboards. The sound quality of that is really wonderful. Dewy corridors of billboards, really, really excellent. But it also means that this has the, this quality of a kind of like fantasy city and city experience, which is, you know, something that, you know, someone had to invent the uh, the city sex poem. And most people say that it was uh, it was Baudelaire who invented the idea of um, writing poems about having sex with strangers in cities because cities are cool and it's like a new thing that you're excited about because you're you're like a, a French person in the 19th century. But I feel like this is one of the most sort of I mean it really is like an exquisite example of that that sort of poetic trope which can feel so sort of familiar or hacky, but here because it sort of rushes ahead so quickly. You, you don't get sort of caught up in the kind of the stagecraft of it. The uh, the fact that billboards are public language and the words that lovers speak to one another in tender moments are not public language adds uh, uh, extra city sexiness to this sexy city poem. I really enjoy that. Yeah, it and like the the juxtaposition between telephone the powerhouse that the main wires are insolent with then with your tongue remove the tape and press your lips to mine until they are incandescent. There's a kind of like a parallelism in both of these, like between the corridors of billboards and the words that play softly up and down them, and between you know calling out the the, the powerhouse to fix the fix the main wires and then with your tongue, remove the tape and press your lips to mine till they are incandescent. There's a, an, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, an inspiring DIY sexiness, you know, <laughs> today, these young people, they don't know how to take care of themselves, but in, in the 1920s, you had to like lick off your own, your own elect- electrical tape <laughs> and you were, and you were thankful. What I'm thankful for this, this Thanksgiving is that, uh, the, what's wrong with the main wires is that they're insolent because uh, yeah. in- insulation in an electrical context is something that prevents current from moving from one place to another. But it, it also goes back to no man being an island because it's the Latin mm-hmm. root for an island. A, a peninsula is a, a pine insula. It's, a, it's almost an island. And insulating something is to make an island of something. To, to isolate something, which is which is both the state of solitude from which an erotic connection would be a relief, but it's also the state of solitary personhood that makes you capable of having an erotic connection to begin with. I mean, it's, it's the Carson triangle enacted perfectly. There has to be a distance for the current to jump. It's, you, you, that's why you can't fall in love with a character in your own dream you have to fall in love with another separate sovereign person yeah people say sparks fly they never say sparks roll over that doesn't happen (laughs) one thing i'm noticing by reading all three of these poems together is the way that these three poets use their metaphors very much evokes a historical moment which does happen in other which happens just naturally because a poet is writing in a particular time period. But Hmm. there's something about the choice of these metaphors. I don't know if it's because the last two in particular use technological um, pieces to make their metaphors run, but even the Sunflower Sutra poem feels very much of its time because of the comparisons that are being made. 
I'm not sure what to make of that. If that's a thing that happens with the metaphors or if that's like just because of the items that are more ready at hand of a particular time period. I don't know. I mean, that makes me think of two things. One is the thing Isaac was talking about last week about how when you're translating a poem, sometimes you come up against the sort of the word for a hyper-specific object. But it also is making me think about how when I was in college, I was reading Shakespeare and it struck me that a lot of puns and references and uh, images and metaphors in Shakespeare benefit from the fact that the audience would know how things were made. And so he can sort of take advantage of the fact that they, they kind of know like, okay, this thing comes from this product, which comes from this animal or this, you know, plant or whatever. And he can use that to sort of create all these weird back routes. And, you know, um, I mean, sort of like short circuits, we could almost say there's a way in which like metaphors are kind of like short circuits, you know, where uh, electricity jumps, you know, in a way you're expecting it to, and that creates a spark. And it, at the time, I remember thinking, like, this is so unfair that Shakespeare can, you know, make all these, you know, uh, metaphors that nowadays, because no one knows how anything is made, we can't do that anymore. And in some sense, what these poems are showing us is that 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 isn't true, that, you know, there's all sorts of, um, I don't know, like, practical, experiential, tactile stuff that is available at any at any given moment where you can use your typewriter eraser in the 1950s to create a very, very strange metaphor that I don't think could have been created in the 1990s unless you were, you know, really pedantic or really gambling on people remembering what typewriter erasers looked like 20 years earlier. And even this poem with the, um, even her lips are copper wire because it's kind of operating at a time period where the incandescence of light bulbs is so apparent and so readily like noticeable, right? You can actually see through those light bulbs to see the wires. And although that's coming back because of like post hipster aesthetic, whatever, it's still Mm -hmm. not quite incandescence of tungsten isn't really in the consciousness in the same way. So that, that kind of the way that sparks move through electricity just isn't quite available in the same way. You have to go back to this other time period for that to really show up, for that to really be illuminated. And if you want to have people drinking bootleg liquor and spell it bootleg L-I-C-K-E-R drinkers in a a poem about Eros that is this oral bootleg liquor, Mm -hmm. I'm in my God. Yeah. So here's here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that we arrived at a really great place and then the last thing is just going to be me saying, I don't know, maybe people do still say bootleg and then that's going to be the end of the episode and it's going to be like a huge anticlimax. Well, instead we should say something else like how cool is it that her lips are only like copper wires in this one agonizingly specific way? Her lips are not like copper wires because they are hard or ductile or metallic or cold. They are only like copper wires because they can serve to conduct electricity. Yeah, and that's another way in which this feels so different from like the Renaissance Descripti poem where it's clearly description towards the end of, you know, having an erotic encounter with someone and not towards the end of like looking at them from across your um, jousting match and like pining. Thank you for bringing that up, Isaac, because this is a really good example of how metaphors are really fun when you keep, when they keep looping and you keep finding more ways that they activate images. But what part of what's so fun about this poem is that it's really only this one way that her lips are copper wire. So what I'm kind of trying to make the comparison with, right, is that, the more you think about how the side of a cliff looks like a typewriter, that gets more and more interesting, right? Because you're like, oh, like there is this way that like how the different faces of a rock cliff will kind of change. One will be kind of like smooth and one will kind of be sloping. And it's kind of interesting to think about where the plateaus are. Um, and it's kind of bizarre to think about how certain mesas just kind of like shoot up from the center the way that a typewriter does rather than slowly sloping. And there's like all of these different ways that you start thinking about how typewriters really are like mountains. Whereas here, 
you're just not allowed to do that because anytime you go any further and it's like, oh yeah, she's really sexy because she has wire lips and you're like, nope, that's not hot. That is not sexy. Decidedly not cool anymore. So you can't move the metaphor any further. You have to be okay with just this one element that works. I was going to say, unless there was a vogue for thin-lipped women in the 1920s that we're not aware of. It, uh, this This works so well that you don't even want to stray beyond the very narrow channel between these two ideas that's being created for you. It's not uh, the kind of violent metaphor where the spillover is intentional. But you, you could draw a uh, contrast to one of my favorite Mayakovsky metaphors is he's talking to his beloved and he says, I will cherish your body like a crippled soldier cherishes his one remaining leg. <laughs> So there's so much spillover in that metaphor because, yes, a crippled soldier does cherish his one remaining leg a great deal. So if you're being cherished like that, that's an awful lot of cherishing. But he has spilled a lot of nonsense all over everything by using that particular metaphor. It's it's the most thunderous moment of narcissism from the most thunderously narcissistic poet who ever existed this is what it, in in the art and revolution trotsky calls mayakovsky a mayakovskomorphist and that's just when he achieves peak mayakovskomorphism so this is so this this is decidedly <laughs> not that this is very accurately steering away from that and not giving her wire lips. I feel like the longer we go, the more in which like various things start to become um, internal metaphors to this episode. So like 30 minutes ago, we were talking about like elaborate <laughs> negative metaphors of like, no, you're not a locomotive. That would be like this, 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 and this. And you just did like the, and this is not Mayakovsky who does this, 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 and is described this way by Trotsky. And his girlfriend is like, who is your other leg? In his, in his play, Vladimir Mayakovsky, a tragedy, he has the cast of characters and it goes... One, Vladimir Mayakovsky, a poet. Two, his girlfriend, 20 feet high, rubber, doesn't talk. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, that's, and that's too much insulation. That's way too much insulation. You're not going to get any current to the street. Yeah. Like, you you got to let me take a look yeah. at it here. You're not getting any yeah. current through. <sighs> Oy, moy. Yeah, I feel like on that note... Devolution... <laughs> Devolution has been reached. Quit while we are wherever we are currently. (laughs) It's somewhere. It's not where we started. (laughs) 